Well, okay. Come on back. Come on back. And take your seat and uh, open with me 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as, as I mentioned to you uh, in the beginning here, this chapter of the Bible has had such a profound impact in my walk with the Lord, but I don't want to make it about me. I want you and I and us to make this about the Lord. But it, I only know really my story so much, so it's just had unbelievable impact uh, in my life. And I think, I think if you and I and we begin to study this and think about it and take this in and meditate on it and ask the Lord to use this chapter and these scriptures to do something in our hearts... I'm convinced he will. For, for instance, for instance, I just want you to think out loud, or not out loud, uh, not out loud to yourself. And I want you to think about if you've ever struggled with uh, bitterness. How about anxiety? How about lack of confidence? How about have you been hurt by somebody else? How about have you felt like you've never measured up? Uh, how about, uh, have you had a problem understanding the will of God? Have you thought about maybe being directionless or being, you know, not knowing what to do with your life or what should I do for the Lord or have you felt lonely? What else can I, uh, you, you, are you harboring unforgiveness? Are you in a fight with somebody else who's a Christian? Hopefully I've got all of us so far. All of those have described me at some point <laughs> in my life and yours too, right? Well, see, this chapter covers it all. In fact, I just, before I begin, I, I just want to show you something in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a word there. It says, we're always confident. And then look below in verse 8. We are confident. It's a word that's really only used in the book of 2 Corinthians except one other place. And let me show you that other place. It's in Hebrews 13 when at the book of at the end of the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer is concluding about what should we look like or how should we live as Christians. And he's going through all these things about brotherly love and entertaining angels and how about marriage and don't covet things and be content. And then he says this, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in verse 6, here it comes. So we, notice the we again. We may say, or we may boldly say. That word boldly right there is the same word for confidence. That's in 2 Corinthians 5 and other places in 2 Corinthians. So we may boldly say, watch this. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? <laughs> oh, by the way, if you've ever been scared to die, the biggie, the big one, this chapter answers that as well. And here uh, in Hebrews 13, the writer here uh, kind of uh, goes back and forth between a couple psalms and says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? I mean, powerful. If you've conquered through the Lord in that area, the most terrible thing that could ever befall humans outside of Christ 
death. I mean, it's what? The Grim Reaper. Death and all the horrible things we think about death. See, Paul tells us that death becomes the greatest thing about us. The physical death. Because we enter into the presence of the Lord. And let's explore it. If we get to that place, watch. All the other things that we mentioned at the beginning sort of, not sort of, do. They do. They fall into place. Here, I'm going to show it to you through the scriptures. We're just going to read it together. It almost doesn't even need expanded upon, although we'll try to do the best. And oh, by the way, what was that nonsense about the meeting being at 1215? There's no way we're getting that early. This is our favorite chapter here. So let's think about it. I wonder if you and I, I wonder if we would allow the Lord seriously to do surgery spiritually here today. Because I'll bet if we surveyed up and down the rows, there are people who are fearful or bitter or withholding forgiveness or afraid to die or are lonely, as we've said, and all the other things that we've talked about. Well, see, (laughs) the reality of what we're about ready to explore with the cross of Jesus Christ right there at the core and center is the answer. We've been exploring this book. It's 2 Corinthians. Remember, he wrote more than two letters, but two have been preserved and are part of the canon and are uh, what we can study and learn. First Corinthians was more of a rebuking letter. Second Corinthians is kind of him defending his ministry. And as he defends his ministry, Paul, this sort of burst of praise that happens from the beginning or the early part of the book through chapter 7, we're currently in the middle of it where he's defending his ministry, but, but the Lord uses this defense to pull out of Paul, to inspire Paul to have this burst of praise where we learn all these amazing things about who God is and Christ and the Holy Spirit and what we're to look like as New Testament Christians who are living by the new covenant and not the old covenant, it it actually shows us what our life should be like here. And last week, we explored this part that talked about how we are insufficient of ourselves. We're not confident in ourselves We're confident because in our insufficiency, God comes in and makes us sufficient. And we talked about the Old Testament story of Gideon and the cracked pots and the torches in there and the defeating of the enemy when the cracked pots had the torch lit inside of it. And that's a picture of what we look like with the power of God who resides in us, who comes to live in us. And when we concluded last week, we saw that we're not to lose heart. We're not to sort of expire spiritually. It said... Paul says in 16 of chapter 4, don't lose heart, don't faint, don't grow weary, even though your outward man is perishing. And oh boy, do I know that. Don't you know that when somebody asked me today, a little boy, how old I was? And I asked him, how old do I look? (laughs) And he was about 10 years over what I currently am. What a sweet kid. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) He is a sweet kid. He is a sweet kid. 
But we are perishing, aren't we? Yet, there's this amazing good news in verse 16. Our inward man, our inward person, is being renewed day by day. As we participate, not participate, as we live in the light, the reality of the new covenant of grace, we, we have new mercies every day, new grace. And we can be renewed for our light affliction, verse 17, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and internal weight of glory. And that's a, a play sort of on Paul as the writer who is thinking in Hebrew but writing in Greek. And it's making these people think about the weight of glory, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. Wow, we're... we're being worked in us is a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the, the things which are not seen. See, that's what I'm asking us to do here today. Is there an insurmountable, quote-unquote, problem in your life? Isn't there an insurmountable person in your life? Are you withholding forgiveness that you say you won't forgive, or you won't receive forgiveness, or you won't extend forgiveness, or whatever, are you saying all that because you're looking at the thing that's happening with your eyes and you're not exploring and thinking about what's eternal? Then this chapter and this book is for you. You understand? Are you stuck in those areas where you feel lonely and yet you know that the Bible says you're not lonely? I'm not saying they're not real things. They are real things and they're tough and they're difficult. I get it. But here he says, quit looking at what you can see. What really matters is the things that you can't see. For the things which are seen are just temporary things, folks. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That's your call. That's my call. And then he goes into this chapter. So hold on and allow the Lord to do his surgery today. Whatever it is, if the Lord has spoken to you, even in these first few minutes about being bitter towards someone or being upset with someone who's a Christian or, or, or whatever it is, I don't know what it is. Ask the Lord to speak to us today. For we know, and the first thing I want you to see here <laughs> is that we can know. You're like, well, what is he so excited about that for? We can know in the Christian life. Don't you like to know? Doesn't it make you feel better when you know? Like suffering. When you feel like you just don't know, but when you explore the doctrines that the Lord sets forth, the message that the Lord sets forth in Job and Lamentations and Jeremiah and the New Testament, and you sort of know, well, you don't sort of, you know that there's a purpose in your pain. You don't understand why sometimes, but you know that, see, you know now. And it helps us go on. For we know, look, that if, that's the other word I want you to consider before we go on. If our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. That's fascinating. If. Because see, someday somebody's going to read this and their earthly tent won't be destroyed. Because the Lord's going to come back for us and we're going to be caught up in the air with him. So some of us won't die. I don't know if it's now, but you, you get what I'm saying. But if the Lord doesn't come back first, I got news for you. <laughs> We're going to die. Physically. Physically. We are. We're going to die. But here he says, for we know. Isn't it interesting in the, in the discussion of death, physical death, he says, you and I and we can know. I know, i got to bring it up. 
I don't know if you know this, but I like sports. And what's really conflicting is I, when I watch a certain team that's in college, they have a, a rival. And when I was a kid, I mean, it meant everything. And we would be in anticipation for a whole week. And it was just almost too much to take while you watch the game, the fumbles and the mistakes and the touchdowns against him. You just... But when you overcome and you won, finally, it's, oh, that's fantastic. But what's amazing is, listen, if I go back and watch those games now, and I only watch the ones we win, it's really strange. I'm not so anxious. I'm not all uptight about it like I would be during the game. I, I'm, you, know, you know why it is? Because I know And here he says, we know, not we might know, not maybe, not you, it's, we don't know all the details, but we know some things and the most important things, and this is it. If our earthly house, which is called a tent, what do you do with a tent? You put it up and you take it down, and it's not where you live generally. Where you live is in your house. You have a tent for just certain things, but they're temporary and they're not permanent. And here, Paul says, by the way, Paul was a tent maker, folks. You see how the Holy Spirit uses people in inspiring the word. He just uses their normal circumstances. It's not fireworks in the air or something falling off your shelf. To sort of, he just uses the circumstances in your life. Here, Paul's a tent maker, and he knows that tents are not permanent. And he says, our earthly house, this tent, if it's destroyed, and oh, by the way, that's a really significant word. This is like a violent destruction. So even if, you know, you die a violent death, but see, to man outside of Christ, every death is horrendous and awful. You understand the point? And he says it there, our earthly house, this tent, if it's destroyed, well, don't worry, he doesn't say it here, but that's what he's saying. We have a building from God. We, we're getting a permanent resurrected body, and we know that from 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. We have a building from God, and it's not a house made with hands. No, it's an eternal house, you see. We're getting an eternal body. Eternal in the heavens, because you and I and we, we get so uptight and worried in this world about the person who's bugging us, or the person this, or that circumstance, or no bonus, or no promotion, or basketball games, or whatever it is. We get so worried about it that we forget that this thing that I have right here, and the thing that you have, is just temporary, and the reason it's temporary is because you're not made for here. I mean, you are in one sense, but your permanent home is with the Lord in eternity, and that's the point. Just like me watching those games when I was a little kid, or even this year, which was really awful, I'm all anxious and uptight because I don't know. But when I know and I go back and watch, then I'm okay. I'm better than okay. And here he's saying, don't forget, people. You're not made for this world. This is just the temporary. It's not the eternal. Settle your scores. Don't worry and be anxious. Give forgiveness. Extend forgiveness. Be repentful. Be transparent. Live, in other words, in light of eternity because this is just temporary stuff. That's what he's saying. For we're not made with hands eternal, eternal in the heavens, for in this we groan. Yes, we're groaning. 
I mean, what are we groaning for? Well, he's going to tell us here in a little bit. For life to swallow up all that is dying. Real life, eternal life with the Lord. We're groaning, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And I wonder, I wonder, no one's saying you shouldn't be responsible and eat right and get sleep and exercise. Nobody's saying that. But we're so ultra-concerned with this, do we ever yearn for and long for the day when we get the heavenly body that will never wear out, never die, never be sick, never have coronavirus. (laughs) It's like the upside down of everything people in the world worry about. Here he says... For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Verse 4, for we who are in this tent groan. Of course we groan. We're unsettled. We're anxious. I mean, physically we hurt. We have pain. We cry. We're hurt. Our feelings are hurt. All this sort of thing. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. Are you getting it? Sometimes we're so anxious about health and all that sort of thing, and and rightly so. I mean, I'm not trying to say live a gluttonous life or that. But what he is saying here is you're, you're missing the boat here. Don't get so beat up and bummed out about all of that because you're getting a heavenly body. This is orthodox Christianity. I mean, this is what Christians believe. Not only believe, this is reality. This is more real than the nose on our face. This is it. But further clothed, watch this. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. I can't believe how Paul phrases that right there. Like, I would have written something like our defeat, you know, would have been snatched away by victory or something. And he says, no, all that stuff you're worrying about, (laughs) think about it. (laughs) When you leave this life, it's going to be swallowed up with all of life. (laughs) And that's just basic Christian doctrine. And and it's sitting right here for all of us to examine, to, to think about every single day of our lives. And yet we worry and strain and struggle in these areas We'll look at this in verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And he wants to tell you that it's so. He wants to tell you that you don't have to live in that fear anymore of any of that. He wants to make sure you know. So he puts it in his eternal scriptures. Here it is. Whether you believe it or not, (laughs) it's true. But then he does something so beautiful and so wonderful. He goes, it's almost a joke. It's like the Lord has a sense of humor. He goes, listen, I'll guarantee it for you. Here's what I'll do, he says. I'll send you the Holy Spirit, and he'll come and live in your life. And you know that scripture that in John where it says, you know it's weird about the wind, You can't really see wind. But what you can see are the effects of wind. And isn't that a beautiful thing? You ever been out on a summer day, maybe in the park or something, you just kind of lay in the grass and lay back and look up, 
and you just see the wind going through the trees. Or if you've ever been out in the autumn leaves, and you're taking a walk or whatever, and you just, you, you sort of see that wind blowing and those, you know, aspen trees or something shimmering up there. You don't really see the wind. You see the effects of the wind, and the effects of the wind are amazingly beautiful and glorious. Everybody tracking with me? How about when the Lord does something in your life and you know it's the Holy Spirit? It just, it takes your faith and it just goes, boom, right? You, and, and you know, you don't need anyone to confirm it for you. Just between you and the Lord, the Holy Spirit has done it. And you know that you know that you know that it's from God. Anybody ever had that experience? And you're just like, yes. You know what that is or who that is? It's the Holy Spirit. And one of the things you can think about the next time that happens is, or thank the Lord for it. Lord, wow. Thank you for that thing that you just did. But also, Lord, thank you because you're telling me again that my life is secure with you in heaven forever. With a glorified, resurrected body. I don't have to worry about this or that. I don't have to be afraid of death or dying. Just time out for a second. little rabbit trail. Yeah, I mean, let's think about this. I mean, no one's saying, and I hope you know this, that you wouldn't be reticent or a little worried or, I don't know, reluctant to go through a strung-out cancer diagnosis where it hurts and you're struggling and you're sick. I don't think anyone's saying that. But then, so, so that's the process of leading up to death. What I think he's saying here is, but when you actually die, you don't have to worry about it. You get the difference? Of course, in the middle of pain and suffering, no one up here or in here, I think, is just saying, ah, forget about that. No, that's real to you, and it hurts, and you struggle. But even in the pain, it can be redeemed. But he says when it gets to that moment when you're going to go into eternity, you don't have to worry. So why would you worry about it now? So this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Do you understand then in Colossians when this same writer says, Christ in you is the hope of glory, what that means for all? It's such a hope, and it's glorious to be with the Lord. Wow. So, verse 6. How about this? We are always confident. Now you say, well, wait a minute, this is Paul. Okay, but we explored that before. Has anybody been through what Paul's been through? Beatings with rods, whippings, shipwrecks, prison. I mean, this guy knew suffering and tough times. You get it? And he could say, we are always, and I love it that he says we. That means we, Christians, we are always confident. I love the word. Here you go, women's study. That means of good courage. Paul could say we, were all, we are always confident. Why? Because of this reality of what Christ has done for us. In re- light of what Christ has done for us, we can always be of good courage. Or the word also means, dare I say it? Of good cheer, you crabby people. It means of good cheer. Or it means bold, like you would think. Courage, walking in the face of fear, bold. It means all those things. Here, Paul says, we are always confident. Gosh, don't you like that? I don't know. Maybe it's just something about me. I'm built this way. I think you're built this way. I like stuff like that. Because I don't know if you know it, but sometimes it's scary to live when you're relying upon your own strength. Wait a minute. I'm going to be a dad, and i got to lead these five people, not boss them around, but lead them? I don't know if I'm up for that. Christ says, or God says, 
perfect. Now I can work with that. And he develops this boldness and courage and confidence, but it's not in yourself, it's in the Lord. You say, well, I don't know if I can forgive. Right. You probably can. It's going to be difficult. But if you acknowledge your insufficiency and allow the Lord to live in and through you, now he can work with that. I don't know if I can let go of this grudge or that. I don't know if I can praise you in this. Perfect. You're insufficient for that. Let me live my life in and through you. See it? So we're always confident. Isn't that beautiful? When you're filled up with the Lord, with these realities, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, we have access to this confidence, this courage, this cheer, this boldness, knowing that we, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. In other words, we're here now, we're in these tents, we do have the Holy Spirit with us, but we're not in eternity yet. That's what he's saying there. In other words, this is the worst it's ever going to get. I can't believe the book, Your Best Life Now. No offense, but what a dumb book. I, I know I might get in trouble for this, and I know it's going on out over the airwaves. I know the point the author's trying to make. Well, you got your worst life now. Don't, don't let that, but see, and even while you're in this tent and it's not your best life, it's still grand and glorious because the Holy Spirit's with you, but you're not with the Lord. When you go to be with the Lord, though, oh, man, praise the Lord. While we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But the problem is, many of us want to just keep walking by sight. Oh, that person was nice to me, so I'll be nice to them. Oh, that person wasn't nice to me, so I won't be nice to them. See, that's walking by sight, not by faith. Because the Lord says, if you have an enemy, you pray for them, and you heap kindness on them, and you love them. And you say, well, I can't do it. And the Lord says, I know you can't. That's why I'm living through you. You're here for something more. And your life is not just to have income and white fences and travel on airplanes and go to places that you love. That's not it. That's not new covenant living. It's not the covenant of grace living. We're confident. Here he comes again. He just, he just wants to tell you how confident you can be when the, you let the Lord live in and through you. You're not confident in yourself. You're totally confident in him. You're well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Man, oh man. See, we don't have some weird thoughts about, you know, dying in a weird way, but we know we're prepared for the day that it happens that we're going to be right there with the Lord instantly. Instantly. Jesus said to the man on the cross, today you will be in paradise. So it shoots down two faulty theories in the church. There's no soul sleep, folks. You don't just die and do nothing until some other further time, and there's no purgatory. It's pleasing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, but not in some weird way, just a confident way. When that day happens, oh, you'll be with him. And then he goes, therefore, we make it our aim. Or in the King James Version, it actually uses the word ambition. So, remember I told you at the beginning, this chapter addresses a lot of things. Well, the first thing is, it addresses fear, and especially fear of death. And it also addresses things like boldness and confidence 
Not in yourself, but in life, or cheer, or courage. It addresses all those. But it also says, oh, you don't know what to do with your life? Just read this verse. Make it your ambition as the Lord fills you up, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. There it is. Drop the mic. Go home. Every morning, every day, everything that happens in your life, whether you're a student, whether you go to you know, this college or that college, whether the Lord's given you this job or that job, whether you're employed or not employed, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, is it pleasing to the Lord? Now, wait a second. Wait a second. I don't want you to get anything mixed up here. Your relationship to God is solved in Christ. You're not earning your relationship to the Lord through this verse. Oh, maybe I'll go to more Bible studies. He'll love that. And he'll like me a little bit more than he'll like her or him because I went to more Bible studies. I gave more money. I served on more committees. I helped more old ladies across the street. Sorry, old ladies. But anyway, (laughs) that's not this. That's already been settled in Jesus Christ. By the blood of Christ, you've surrendered your life to him. Nothing's ever going to change it. Nothing. But now that you live in this relationship where you can cry out to him, Abba, Daddy, term of endearment, closeness, intimacy, you live just like you would with any good dad. (laughs) You want to do what pleases him. He asks you to do something. You know that he loves you and cares for you, and he only has what's good for you because he's shown you appropriate uh, 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 love and emotion towards you and care and nurturing. He has. And so as a kid who's growing up in that house, you look at your dad, and the dad asks you to, to, hey, you stay out of the street uh, with your bike. Okay, dad. Hey, um, uh, I want you to not to uh, uh, live with your girlfriend before. Okay, that's okay. And, and you get it? Because you love your dad and you respond back to your dad. Help me with this. Okay, I'll do that. Here he says, everything you do, make it your aim. Your whole life, what are you aiming at? Look, it solves the problem. What am I aiming at with life? What's my heart ambition now that I have the Lord living in my life? What is my ambition? It's to please you, Lord. What pleases you? Not what pleases man. What pleases you? And that's what I'll do. Boom. Now you went from previously being aimless to being right on target. Isn't that great? You don't have to worry and wonder. You make it our aim. That's what we do as New Covenant Christians with the Holy Spirit living inside of it. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. By the way, Paul says this several times in Ephesians 5.10, learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In Philippians 4.18, uh, uh, he says that when people supported him financially, that was well-pleasing to God. When Here you go, young people. Where are the young people? Anyway, we should send this to the Sunday school. Colossians 3.20 says, When children are obedient to the parents, it's well-pleasing to God. And there's some other places as well. So Paul uses that phrase a lot. Well, for here's the kicker now. Here's what makes life life, in my opinion. For we must, verse 10, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you know that there are several judgments talked about in the Bible? I don't want any of you at one of the judgments. It's called the great white throne judgment. It's for unbelievers coming at most likely the end of the millennial reign, but You and I and we, we don't want to be there. God is so perfectly fair if you read about it in the book of Revelation. He goes, oh, okay, and it ties in right to this verse. He goes, we'll open up the books. We'll we'll decide 
What's going to happen to you, I'm paraphrasing, based on your righteousness? Because we'll be totally fair, or God will be totally fair. But the problem is, the Bible says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We can't measure up. But he's still totally fair. You've decided that you want to be judged based on your own righteousness. Okay, that's the great white throne judgment. I don't want any of us there. I want us at this judgment. Not I want us at this judgment. That's not a right way of saying it. You will be at this judgment as born-again, spirit-filled Christians. You're going to be at this judgment. And to me, it's what makes life worth living. In fact, later in the New Testament, I think when the Lord comes back for us. That's when it's going to happen, but whatever. The Lord coming back is spoken of as a purifying doctrine in the Bible, and I think this is one of the reasons why. When you get it up in the morning, did you say to yourself today or yesterday or whatever, did you say to yourself, my goodness, I'm going to be at the Bema Seat of Christ? I bet you didn't. And yet we're to live in the light of the Bema Seat. That's what this is, Bema. It's that platform, and it's a Greek word. It sort of means sort of in their games. They were being judged for the things that went around their heads and all that sort of thing, but whatever. We must all appear before our judgment seat of Christ, and the word all in the Greek there means all of us. All. All of us. We're going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. So what's it for? Well, just look over with me at Romans 10 real quick. Romans, oh, excuse me, Romans 14, I apologize. Romans 14, look over there. Look over at Romans 14. You and I and we, we're going to appear at the Bema Seat of Christ. We're going to be judged. But I want you to put something at ease here. You're not going to be judged whether you have eternal life or not with the Lord. That's been settled by Jesus. There's something else that's going on at the Bema Seat of Christ. What is it? Look down in verse 10 of Romans 14. But why do you judge your brother? Here it comes, folks. If you're having uh, relational problems with somebody, you're judgy, or maybe they're judgy, or whatever, you're judgy. Listen to this. Or why do you judge your brother? But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt? Are you, do you have contempt for somebody in here or in the body of Christ? Do you have contempt for somebody? You don't like them? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess. So then each, watch, watch, watch. You're not going to give an account for the person that you don't like. Hey, Lord, Ernie over there is such a jerk, and I want you to give you his list of how jerky he was to me during my life. I think sometimes we live life like that. Here's what he says. Each of us shall give an account of your own person, of yourself. You're not going to give Ernie's account. You're going to give the account for yourself. Oh, boy. That puts a big spin on how I treat the other brothers and sisters in the flock. Uh, you're going to give an account of yourself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. If you have an, a, a grudge or a beef with somebody, here's what the Lord says. Resolve it. <laughs> not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Well, there's one place where it talks about the judgment. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. 12.15, are you kidding me? My wife, I think, scheduled that. <laughs> nah, we will be. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work 
of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. So listen, and what's in thought or in view here is not only just the work that you did, oh boy, I'm, I don't like saying this almost because myself, <laughs> but the motives with which you did the work. Were your motives so that people would say, oh man, what a great pastor he is. He's so nice and wonderful. Or were you trying to proclaim the Lord to people? Your motives to be friendly with everybody and not tell them the truth, it's going to be tested, folks, all of it, by fire. What, what we've done for eternity will last into eternity. The other stuff is going to be burned off. So when you go back to 2 Corinthians 5, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's not to get into heaven and to have eternal life, but it's what you're receiving in heaven. Like you could read all throughout the New Testament. What did I do that mattered? The things that you gave me, Lord, how did I steward them? And he's going to talk about it. In fact, you could look in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run a race receive the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He says, go for it. Some people don't believe in crowns. I personally believe that's not accurate. Here, Paul says, go for it. Run to win the crowns. And here's the ultimate check and balance on that. It's not so when you get to heaven, you could say, oh, man, I got more than him or her. No, here's the Bible tells us you're going to take the crowns and you're going to worship Jesus with them. You're going to lay them at his feet. It's not to prop yourself up. It, even the crowns are to worship him. Uh, you have... That crown, you have a crown like, like of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ It is coming? You could look at 2 Timothy 4.8, crown of righteousness. 1 Peter 5.4, crown of glory, and on and on and on. Crown of life, Revelation 2.10, about suffering and some others. So my point is, the Bible speaks of these things that you're going to receive, rewards or the things that are going to last. Your, your stewardship's going to be judged, your motives, your idle words. Ay, ay, ay. And he says, know therefore the ter knowing therefore that, verse 11, back in 2 Corinthians 5, the terror of the Lord we persuade men. See, because he knows he doesn't want you to be at the judgment seat or the great judgment. He wants all of us to be at the Bema seat judgment. He doesn't want you to be at the great white throne judgment. And he knows it's a terrible thing to be in the hands of an angry God. God is a consuming fire and he doesn't want you there. He wants you at this judgment. And so because of that, his whole motivation of his whole life is to appropriately go out and share the gospel so men, women, boys and girls will be persuaded to give their lives to Christ. That's it. That's what new covenant living looks like. Whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or you work for there or there or whatever, it doesn't matter. Your whole life is given up or used to persuade men and women, boys and girls. You see, God bless you. We get caught up in anger and unforgiveness and bitterness, and then the whole machinery, the whole aim of our life gets bottled up because we're having to go and deal with the crazy stuff that happens in our lives that we hold on to. And he's saying, don't do that anymore. Put off all of that stuff. For we don't commend ourselves again to you, Paul writes, but give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf. See, he was not a man pleaser. He was a God pleaser. But he knew that he knew that if they understood why he did the things he did 
said the things he said, if they understood it, they'd be able to take that gospel that he delivered to them and give it to other people. So he sort of, again, talks to them about his ministry. So we don't commend ourselves again to you, but you give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. In other words, what's mostly important is not to just look at appearance, it's to look at people's heart. Even the people who may seem happy or content without the Lord are in trouble, and we want you to persuade. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Because you have to understand, this church was in a Greek culture, and a Greek culture equated suffering with you were being a bad person, or being poor with you being a bad person. They didn't like any of that stuff. And they also believed that you weren't really going to get a body after you died. That would be inappropriate. And so many of the people were saying to Paul in his message, that's wacko, man. That's way out. And he's saying, but listen, if we're beside ourselves, understand it's all for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. If other people misunderstand us, don't worry. It's all for God. And here he goes, watch. And he wants you to know, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And that's kind of a tricky thing. But here's the thing. The Lord's love compels you. Is the Lord's love compelling you? If you're interested in cleaning ministry or children's ministry, hopefully it's not or, or whatever, or pastoral ministry, or worship ministry, or AV ministry, your motivation is that you've uh, uh, seen and understood the Lord's love, and that word compels. It's really a strange word. It means to propel. That's the thing that moves you out and keeps you going. It's the love of God. If your uh, motivation for the cleaning ministry is just to, I don't know, pass the time or have people look at you and say, wow, I'm so happy you're doing all these great things. Well, you're, you're missing the boat. Or if you're setting up the chairs, it's the love of Christ that compels you. Whatever you do when you go out, is the love of Christ compelling you? That's what he's saying. That's what we are to be and to do. And he says that if one died for all, then all died. See, Jesus died for all of us. And we're all sort of, not sort of, we're dying to self and more of the Lord is coming forth in our life. And he died for all. See, Jesus died so that all could have salvation. Not everybody surrenders their life to that. And this isn't a universalist message. That those who live should live no longer for themselves. I have some very strong opinions about this verse. First in my own life, because I'm, don't ask Jan, but the most selfish here. But, you know, most of the problems we see in the church is because we're not living for others. You live for him. If you're having a crisis of identity, who am I, Lord? What am I all about? He puts it there for you. You were made for him. I always say this, but it's so true. The American church has got it backwards. Just watch Christian TV. We think in American church, he was made for us. Lord, I need a new suit. Voila. No, man. Lord, here I am this morning. I'm reporting for duty. Whatever you have for me today, Lord, that's what I want. Wherever you want me to go, oh, that's where you want me to go. 
We don't live for ourselves. We live for him who died for us or died for them and rose again. That's always the core of everything we do. We live by resurrection power. Okay, just hold on to me because this is the, or hold on for a minute because this is the part that just revolutionized my life. Giving all that he said, you see, I always thought for the first 10 years or so of my Christianity, okay, I got to measure up in this life. I treated it sort of like a self-help paradigm sort of thing. Maybe some of you do. And it was really pressurized and guilt-laden because I never could measure up, and I always made mistakes. And then I thought, man, I'm such a... You ever said this to yourself? I want to eliminate this from the Christian vocabulary. I'm such a terrible Christian. Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's why the Lord lives in and through you. He matures you. I get what you're saying. And here's where all the pressure comes off. It's right here in my opinion. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We're not going to think about people, about what they do or say in the flesh, because we know that's not from God. We're going to think like Christ. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. He went, he died and rose again, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's how we know him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, ask yourself, ask yourself right now, can you say to yourself, you're in Christ? Are you in Christ? Say it to yourself. If you are, listen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, or she is a new creation. That doesn't mean you're an old Tim, or insert your own name, made better. This verse means when you become a Christian, you become new. Not old Tim, made better. New Tim. Way different. It's like a blank slate that the Lord's writing on or painting on or writing your story on. Therefore, if anyone is, a new, or is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's just sort of like, do yourself a favor and uh, today, go read Revelation 21, verse 5. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now, here's where the, all the pressure comes off. And just bear with me for... One more hour. Here's where all the pressure comes off. You see, we teach reconciliation this way. We go to kindergarten and, you know, you have a problem with uh, Susie's crayons. You like them. And so me, Tim, I go over, and when Susie's not looking, I take her crayons and I go back, and the teacher sees it. And the teacher says, you know, she doesn't say reconcile, but she says, I want you two to reconcile, Tim, and you're the one who stole the crayons. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go say you're sorry to Susie. I'm, in this case, in kindergarten at the sweet little age of six years old, stole Susie's crayons. I'm the offending party. I offended someone, correct? So reconciliation in man's world starts with the offending party. Tim, go say you're sorry. You initiate reconciliation. And you go over and you say, Susie, I did it. When you weren't looking, I stole the crayons and now... I've been asked to give these back to you. And now the ball's in Susie's court. And generally, Susie says, oh, okay, that's okay, Tim. Thanks for saying you're sorry. And now reconciliation happens. In man's world, you see, reconciliation comes from the offending party. But not in God's economy. You see, you're the offending party. I'm the offending party in God's economy. And we had no ability to be reconciled. Zero. None. So God said, I'll send my son Jesus Christ. Watch this. The the party that was offended, God himself made the first move towards reconciliation. Is that beautiful or what? And what we're to do is just to receive it as a gift You see, when we read this, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. The offended party made the first move. Oh, okay. That's pretty spectacular. 
and beautiful and glorious, and you just walked in, read the scriptures, and you've just seen the gospel and a sliver of its magnificent right there, reconciliation. See, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and now, watch, I know. Come, you, Everybody, single file line after church, I want you to come up and say, hey, pastor, what's my ministry? I don't know how many people are here, but I'm going to say the same thing every time you come through the line. Reconciliation, 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 reconciliation. Paul says, you've been given now, or we've been given now, the ministry of reconciliation. And here's the beautiful part. We didn't do the work. We just say, see Jesus. <laughs> Surrender your life to Jesus. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you see the mystery of the cross right there? Jesus was on the cross, but God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Wow. The offended party. Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, one more big hurdle right here, and then we go home. Game's not till 3.30. You guys are fine. Here it is. Ready? There's this beautiful transaction that took place at the cross. The sins of the world were imputed to Jesus at the cross. Jesus never was a sinner, even when the sins of the world were imputed to him at the cross. You get that, right? But our sins were put, so to speak, into his spiritual bank account so that the person who wasn't guilty was treated as if he was guilty, and all of God's wrath could be poured out on his son at the cross against our sin. But here it comes. Not imputing their trespasses to them. You understand that transaction happened, but watch. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Watch, here comes the great trade-off that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Christ's Sins were imputed to him at the cross, and God's wrath was poured out there. Watch, his justice was satisfied. God had to go through with his justice. Now, when you place your life in Jesus Christ, when I place my whole life in Jesus Christ, watch this, you receive back from God his righteousness, so that when you start reading through the scriptures where it says, this one always got me as a kid, it still gets me. How perfect do we have to be? Oh, um, you have to be as perfect as your Father in heaven. You go, wait, 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 wait. That ain't happening. Yes, it is. Through Jesus. All the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, past, present, imputed to him when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Look, we get God's righteousness so that we'll never stand at the great white throne judgment because we're not counting on our own righteousness. We're counting on the righteousness that God has imputed to us. And now we escape that terror. You get it? There's the gospel. There's justification. There's imputed righteousness. It's all right here. Man, this solves everything. The Lord has solved it. The Lord has done it. Anxiety, fear, lack of confidence, loneliness, harboring judgments and grief and uh, harboring unforgiveness and not being able to work thing out between your brother or sister. Um, every problem that comes up in your life, he says, don't look at it from a, a, a temporary perspective. Look at it as an eternal perspective. What, what should I do with my life? Well, here's your aim. Just be pleasing to me in everything. Uh, by the way, I know what your ministry is. When you go to work, when you go to the uh, uh, extracurricular activity, if you're a mom at home or a dad at home or whatever it is, give them reconciliation. 
through Jesus Christ. You don't even have to wonder. That's your life, and that's what your life looks like. And so every day that you grow up, you know what your mission is. Oh, and by the way, he takes care of the worst thing that could ever happen to man. Death. You never have to be unsettled about that ever again. You know when your final breath is here, it's just the doorway to all of life. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this word. Um, What an amazing word. Lord, I'm so thankful that you've inspired Paul and his writings, and they're included for us here. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your power and by your spirit to rectify these things between people, if we need to. Help us not to live so small, but to live in a grand way by your power and by your spirit. Thank you that we don't have to earn our way to heaven, but that you've taken care of it through reconciliation. But Lord, on the flip side of that, help us to be great stewards of our life. Help us to live grace-filled lives, new covenant lives. And Lord, bring us to people who are lost and lonely and discouraged and wounded so that we could boldly declare the confidence that they can have through you. And Lord, we're going to need help because (laughs) oftentimes we get off track. Help us to be on mission, Lord, with your ambition and aim. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.